Yo, this weirdo really starting a podcast? Yeah, girl, he been like that since birth. Always gotta do everything in the weirdo way. The weirdo way. The weirdo way. The weirdo way. Yes, yes, welcome weirdos to a bonus episode of the Weirdo Way podcast. I am your host, Weirdo Way, and I know a lot of y'all are probably thinking like, how in the world is this dude giving me a bonus episode before he dropped the episode one? Um, This is not called the Normal Way Podcast. This is called the Weirdo Way Podcast, okay? We eat dessert before dinner, we eat cereal for lunch, and we drop bonuses before we drop the episode one. <laughs> All right. Well, first things first, please make sure you go ahead and like me on Instagram and Twitter at Weirdo Way. Go ahead and click the subscribe button. Let me know how you feel in the comments after the episode. Good bad and different and last but not least rate me five stars five stars five stars because if you're gonna do anything in this life you might as well do it to the best of your abilities you guys take care of that and i'll be working on these vocal exercises see she sells seashells by the seashore she sells seashells by the seashore (laughs) okay 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 i'm back without further ado the bonus episode weirdo way podcast let go yeah, man, you look into the Weird Away podcast, you know, my street out of Minnesota, you know what I mean? I say, number one, number one, number one, this. Me can't believe my eyes. Everything raw, explicit. Take what me say, me I deliver it to your bum buckler. Do you understand me? All right, what we're trying to cultivate here is a space where I will not tell you what to think. I will just ask if you would like to, yeah? But every now and then, a story's going to come that's going to have me charged up, and I, I I have to let you guys know about it, and that's what this is. Did you guys see that story that ran in WCCO with the headline, Downtown Minneapolis residents have serious safety concerns. Survey show 90% feel less safe. This story piqued my interest on a couple different levels and even forced me to put my journalist hat on. <laughs> I was out here getting statements, writing emails, making phone calls. I'm even in a board meeting with it was City Councilman Steve Fletcher, Minneapolis Police Department's first precinct lieutenant who reports on downtown crime statistics, and the people who wrote this survey, who put the survey out, and it somehow got leaked to WCCO. Okay, so here's some highlights of this story. 90% of residents feel less safe, and 70% say family and friends are scared to visit downtown Minneapolis. 90% of residents feel less safe from what? Eh, WCCO decided that was not an important context to give, so I'll give you the facts as they are. WCCO attained a quote from Mer- Moorhead, member of the Public Safety Task Force of DMNA, Downtown Minneapolis Neighborhood Association, who commissioned the story. And if you're wondering who DMNA is, you're not alone. I had no idea either. <laughs> I'm like, WCCO is painting these people as some sort of authority on the command climate of downtown. I've never heard of them. And again, I live here. Merv says, people are walking significantly less, feel constricted in not being able to do the things they would be able to do normally. When I read that quote, my first thought was, where exactly are these people trying to walk in December to February in Minnesota during a pandemic with a stay-at-home order? Where are these people supposed to be walking? Maybe Merv wanted them to go to the Timberwolves game. Oh, oh wait, they're not allowing fans. Maybe Merv knew of a concert that was going on. Oh, 
wait. So maybe they feel constricted because I don't know this damn pandemic. Per usual, I digress. He says they feel constricted and not being able to do what they want to do. But this article is painting that as a public safety crime issue as opposed to a public safety pandemic issue. Y'all, that distinction is not a small one. And it definitely got me to thinking. Who stands to gain from that sort of narrative? Steve Fletcher, the, count, the city councilman, gives a quote to Esme Murphy, the journalist on the article, saying that the survey states people were told not to consider COVID. How are people being told not to consider COVID in a pandemic? Again, who benefits from that sort of narrative? Then I start noticing a clear slant to the reporting. Esme Murphy says, the way I read this survey, there are people who are blaming you for their fears about downtown Minneapolis, which is strange because when I called the DMNA offices, they said that they had not at the time of that article released the full survey to anyone. So I'm curious as to how Miss Murphy was able to make such a bold declaration off of based off nothing but the raw numbers. As a matter of fact, it made me curious as to why would anyone release a survey to the media with nothing but raw numbers and no context to follow up with. So it made me ponder some questions about narrative building. Is perception reality or is perception a self-fulfilling prophecy in what seems to be becoming a recurring theme in Minneapolis? Black voices not having a seat at the table when issues that impact them the most are discussed. Let's get into all that on the Weirdo Way Podcast. Who tells the story matters. Knowing the background of the story matters, right? And we cannot hide from the fact that any story put out by WCCO has to be filtered through the lens of their filthy past of reporting on the city on policing and community. WCCO for years allowed Liz Collin to report on policing, crime, and community while she was married to the head of the Minneapolis Police Department union boss, Bob Crow. That is a flagrant disregard for journalistic integrity. Liz Collin was reporting on that stuff while she was out here doing sneaky links with Bob Crow. Now, this is not a, a policing episode. Trust me, I think episode three or four is going to be on policing. This is strictly about journalism. But if you can't wait and you want to get to know Bob Crow, go ahead and Google it. And yeah, you will get a good sense of the leadership of the MPD over the past few <laughs> A long time. But again, quote unquote journalist Liz Collin was out here romantically involved with a union boss for the MPD. And she was influencing narratives, policy, opinions, and never once disclosed any of that to the public. WCCO to this day has not come out and fully and unabashedly apologized to the communities in which they hurt. How can we have trust in our media coverage if we can't even understand that basic tenant of journalistic responsibility. I need to be clear. Bob Crow, MPD union boss, he had his wife, girlfriend, lover, whatever, serving as his minister of propaganda while she was supposed to be working in an objective position of journalistic authority. I wouldn't put up with that type of conflict of interest from a food critic reviewing their boyfriend's restaurant, rather less my quote-unquote journalist doing it for the MPD, deceitfully playing as though she was an objective party all while she had the MPD boss in her ear in her bed. That is the lens anything WCCO ever puts out must be viewed through. What they did was flagrantly dangerous to Minneapolis minority communities and Minneapolis as a whole. So you can see with that as the backdrop why it would be so suspicious for this assumingly allegedly objective survey or be out there and only WCCO runs the story with. So first I emailed the DMNA. I get no response. I called up there. People was pressed and while I eventually got some lackluster 
response to statements via email, it did come out that the DMNA is a publicly funded organization, which makes the WCCO leak even more egregious. Taxpayer money went to produce a server that served as a hit piece to influence an election, specifically policy that will be on the ballot, right? Even these board members had to admit how problematic that was after we talked, saying it could be a reason they lose funding in the future. If you guys aren't aware, the measure of where the police should be controlled, whether it be the city council or the mayor, is going on the ballot. WCCO took that survey and made a direct link between Steve Fletcher, who is, you know, leader of the Defund the Police movement, and his opponent, who is very anti that movement, right? Very anti reimagining the police. Which is their right as a news organization, but I don't want to be paying for it as a taxpayer. Call me crazy, but I still think that the separation of government and the news organizations that cover them are essential in this state and country. Bring me back again. Who does this narrative of the downtown boogeyman serve? And why does WCCO always seem to be good for it? So like I said, I called around. They did eventually grant my request to speak to the board members. They invited me via Zoom to their board meeting. The lieutenant for the first precinct of the Minneapolis Police Department reports the crime statistics for downtown to this board, along with city councilman Steve Fletcher on the call. And a couple things stood out from that meeting, guys. The first one being, I want you to guess how many black faces were in that call. Wild guess. I want you guys to guess how many black faces are on that publicly funded DMNA board. I want you to guys to guess how many black faces were on the task force that created that survey that was sent out. And then I want you guys to guess how many black residents in total were on this call. This might be shocking, but the number was zero. Minus myself, there were exactly zero black faces on this Zoom call. Can you imagine that? Just to spell it out for you, policing disproportionately affects black residents in the city. Yet when it was time to use a survey to craft narrative policy opinions in this city, there were exactly zero black voices at any point in time in this process. But this narrative that will be crafted in policies that it will influence in elections that will disproportionately affect how policing happens in Minneapolis, which negatively affects black people, had zero black input on it. And if you don't see the problem with that, then you are part of the problem in the city and in Minnesota as a whole. When I go back home to Philly, family, friends, like I always tell y'all, they tell me, do you work for the Department of Tourism, right? Because I can never stop raving about all the things there are to love about this state. I could go on and on and on and never get tired. And I promise y'all I will just as soon as episode one drops. <laughs> but eventually the topic of what is it like for black people in Minneapolis and Minnesota as a whole. And I have to hang my head because these absolutely embarrassing statistics about the income and achievement gaps that exist in this state that are routinely first or second worst in the nation. Whether it be leaders on the north side, community activists will tell you a primary reason for that is because too often policies, narratives, opinions are being made about black people, black community, things that affect black people disproportionately and have a disproportionate amount of white voices talking about them with no black people having a seat at the table. It wasn't long into the board meeting before I got my next revelation. The Minneapolis Police Department got up, gave his stats for the downtown neighborhoods. Imagine the shot. Violent crime, down from last year. Property crime, down from last year, year to date. How? These are the facts. These are the stats. People always talk about, oh, statistics, statistics, statistics. These are those. Me personally, I think statistics without context are kind of trash, but WCCO, again, ran a story with the headline, 90% of residents downtown feel less safe with no context given. So here are the raw stats. Crime is down 
year to date from last year in this city. Yet, we have organizations that are hell-bent on painting a narrative of how awful it is to live down here. And that is wild to me. This is where I work. This is where I live. This is where I exist. And people always talking about how awful it is. What do you think happens? You are trying to create the perception. And people will say, perception is reality. And this is where we get into that 90% of people who say they feel scared to be around here. I don't really know what we can do about fixing feelings. Yeah, when your feelings and the reality don't match up, we have an issue there where they say stories like the WCCO one work to shape the perception of downtown being the scary, awful place to exist. Even though the lieutenant, this is coming from the MPD now, straight from his mouth, is reporting that the numbers do not back that up. Why is there not a, a, a think piece out there from WCCO reporting that? Why is the DMNA that's supposed to represent downtown neighborhoods not using that taxpayer money to fund initiatives to build up my downtown? to help people understand, hey, it's, don't believe the hype. It's not bad down here. Come spend your dollars at our wonderful restaurants. Spend your time by the river, walks on the bridge. And once the twins get back in their gear, make sure you get down here for that too because baseball is excruciatingly painful to watch on TV. For some odd reason, there are few things more fun and satisfying than a boozy downtown day watching the Twinkies get ass. I mean, it really don't matter where you sit. You could be standing room only. You could be over there by the butt. Look at me. And anybody paying for me, yes, let me get off that. I digress. <laughs> I actually flat out asked the MPD officer. I said, every year, like clockwork, you can count on the same kind of story to run about. Downtown livability, workability, existability, <laughs> right? Regardless of the year, right? I mean, 2018, we saw 30-year lows for crime in this city. You can find the hit pieces on downtown. Who stands to benefit from that kind of narrative? For example, we had a terrorist attack in Buffalo, Minnesota recently that didn't get nearly the amount of coverage that crime in Minneapolis might get of the same caliber. Now, to be fair, part of that is because Minneapolis is the single most important city in Minnesota. There is no question about that, right? But do you think that the people that the city council or that there's a Buffalo Neighbors Association that's putting out a survey about if they feel scared and they're going to release that to WCCO and that WCCO would do something similar? Absolutely not. And I'm, I'm not playing semantics here. I'm telling you guys this stuff has major impact. As a matter of fact, the Minneapolis Police Department officer, when I asked him about that narrative not matching the numbers, he said, well, I can't speak on livability, but I am afraid to walk around downtown. Let me reiterate, the Minneapolis Police Department lieutenant looked me in my Zoom box <laughs> and told me as a Minneapolis police officer, he feels afraid when he walks around downtown, basically saying he agrees with that story. Again, I could draw parallels again about how it seems that the MPD's message and WCCO's message always seem to be in lockstep, but that's not what I'm here for. Policing is going to be a whole nother episode. And I could also talk about how the probability of that officer living downtown or, you know, living here outside of his work capacity is about 4%. 96% of the MPD lives outside Minneapolis. It's an open secret, and that's wildly problematic, you know. You live in a place like Hugo, Minnesota, and you drive all the way into the city. I'm not saying anything new or controversial when I say that's part of the issue when you talk about policing in Minneapolis. That us versus them mentality, that idea that you're not police, you're not policing your neighbors or your neighborhoods, right? You're coming in from the outside as some sort of occupying force. But again, policing is not the focus of this episode. But he looked at me, black man, in my face and told me that. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm. I don't even think that officer realized how triggering it was for him to look at me in that camera and tell me that he walks around downtown fearful. And I'm not making this up, y'all. Y'all can go on the DMNA website. I believe that the Zoom recording will still be there. These, me these meeting minutes are public information or should be if you request it.
When that police officer admits to walking around in the default state of fear downtown, I immediately recognize that's how Philando died, Jamar Clark, Tamir, and the countless, countless others, right, who have been murdered at the hands of the police departments around this country. Because guess what he will be able to do in a court of law is turn around and he can weaponize his fear as a justification for killing me on the street, downtown, on Hennepin Avenue, even though that's how he walks around in his day-to-day -day duties, that MPD officer gets to say, I was afraid, even though he had the gun. Time and time again, the courts of this state and this nation will say that's good enough legal defense for him, regardless of the fact that he admits on a Zoom call that that's how he walks around in his day-to-day, -day, in the place that he works, he walks around in a state of fear, which of course will inform the way he deals with the people he's policing. And if it's that bad, officer, I have to ask that you please talk with the supervisor and ask to be stationed behind the desk or no longer with the force because that level of fear from a man with a badge and a gun is dangerous for your mental health, my neighbors, and myself. Couldn't believe he blatantly admitted that to me, flashing his literal get out of jail free card. And it's wild because this really is not the policing episode, but you understand some of this stuff will overlap. But just to get us back on task, who stands to benefit from shaping the perception of Big, scary downtown, don't come here, hide your kids, hide your wife, and who does it disproportionately impact and hurt? Who has to suffer the policing implications? And at what point do we say, yo, these numbers don't match what you're saying. The perception is not reality, but the perception is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you say scary downtown, scary downtown, scary downtown, scary downtown long enough, people will be like, oh, downtown's scary. I don't want to go there. When, you, when Minneapolis hurts, the state of Minnesota hurts. Don't listen to what none of these legislatures in the in this session right now are saying who are, are, are pretending as though Minneapolis is some sort of welfare queen. Quite the opposite. The data will actually tell you the rural cities of Minnesota are, are the welfare queens, not Minneapolis. Minneapolis pays their taxes and then some. I, unlike the District 9 politician and those like him, recognize that Minnesota is a very interconnected state and the overall greatness of Minnesota is necessitated and amplified by the Iron Range. Rochester, a strong Duluth, Eli, Silver Bay, Lutzfin, the list is long. I roster real, real deep with dope cities here in Minnesota. But I ain't never gonna let no politician pretend as though Minneapolis, Minnesota is not the most important city in this state and that we don't, as a metro, as a city, as the Twin Cities, carry more than our, our fair share financially. That's one of those perceptions I'm talking about that you have to refuse to buy into. So if you love Minnesota, you need to be rooting for Minneapolis. But it seems too much, too often that people want to play politics with the perception of Minneapolis. That is detrimental to the state as a whole. I asked um, Councilman Steve Fletcher the exact same question. He agreed with me. He says, you know what, you're right. At a certain point, the perception does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we gotta do something about that. But he doesn't want to, he didn't want to, you know, discount people who are scared. At the time of the WCCO report, even at the time of that board meeting, the the survey was not made to available to the public. Again, this is a publicly funded organization that was keeping the survey for only the press. So myself and others lobbied the board to release the survey and eventually after some bickering about how much they would allow and what they would allow to who to say what, when, <laughs> they did. And when you read the survey, since WCCO didn't think it was important enough journalistically 
to report the context, I will. You look at the question of the survey and it's very clear to understand how they got the answer they did. First of all, everything, every question was compared to a year ago. How safe do you feel downtown generally as compared to a year ago? How safe do you feel in your neighborhood now as compared to a year ago? Go Google the story for yourself if you don't believe me. See if Esme Murphy and her reporting ever put when that survey was put out. See if she added any context whatsoever to the questions. Hell, see if she brought a single critical thought questioning the survey itself and its validity or how it was distributed or who responded any of it she did not and you know why it's because it already fit the narrative that she wanted to paint it fit the perception of minneapolis that they want to build who benefits from that like aren't you embarrassed to even call that journalism you've gotten more context from the startup podcast than you did from the established WCCO. That's absolutely embarrassing for them. That's just a standard of the word away. <laughs> but I'm serious, y'all. I'm serious. This survey was released December 2020 asking about December 2019. How safe you feel in relation to December 2019. 2020 was a dumpster fire of a year. And oh yeah, it was lit on fire by the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin. What do you mean how safe do I feel in this city at? The epicenter of the civil rights movement of our generation. That kind of context matters. But you just put out a survey saying 90% of downtown Minneapolis residents feel less safe, no context. Because when you really think about it, the story that Esme was trying to run is not nearly as sexy with the context. 90% of downtown residents feel less safe now than they did before the murder of George Floyd during a global pandemic is a fat thank you, Captain Obvious. Not quite the clickbait story. And that's okay if you are trafficking in a sensationalized TV show. If you're Tucker Carlson, I understand that. You're just trying to drive up numbers. You just want the eyeballs, the journalistic credibility kind of falls by the waist. If Esme changes a professional title from reporter anchor to TV personality or TV host, then we could view this a lot differently. Once you call yourself reporter, journalist, anchor, it kind of takes a certain level of objectivity that you clearly are not showing in this story. This is also in part why I keep saying support local journalism. It's too important. We got to pay to get over that paywall for the quality stuff, not the cheap fast food that this story is. Journalism means interrogating the source. Journalism means looking beyond the box score statistic to tell the real story. And just as damning is when you see what happens when you have no black voices in the room. I'm talking about white reporter, white city councilman, white city councilman opposition, white board members who are allowed or in the know or know how to access the DMNA. You have an all-white task force that wrote the question. It's important because do you think that if there was a single black voice on the task force that wrote this survey, there would be 12 options to select a reason that you feel less safe downtown and not one of them being the MPD making me feel less safe downtown? That there would be a survey about public safety and not one place on the survey would there be for me to give an opinion about the quality of policing that I'm experiencing downtown? Do you think that if the board was comfortable with the amount of diversity they had, they would be hesitant to release the uh, demographic information for those who responded to the survey not likely and i need to be clear like i absolutely understand policing is a difficult job and i root for a healthy professional prompt and ethical minneapolis police department i root for them to do their jobs well if for no other reason than their incompetence tossed us into millions and billions of dollars in civil suits that are paid out by the city those are tax dollars that could be going to schools, uh, after school programs, social programs, all kind of things that could be proactive preventative measures to crime. 
too often discussion is framed as either you want no policing at all or you cannot ask for the Minneapolis Police Department or police departments around the country to do better than what they have been. Get what you get and don't throw a fit or you get no policing at all. Those are your two extremes. I either don't want any police at all or I have to accept the, the quality of policing I've been receiving in Minneapolis. Which, to be clear, was so poor that it started a civil rights movement of our generation at the cost of the life of one George Floyd. Nothing on here is addressing the quality of the public safety I'm receiving as a taxpaying citizen. And I'm supposed to take this trash survey as an authority on how people feel in Minneapolis, while we have some of the worst racial disparities right here in our great state of Minnesota. And I wanna be clear, like I made sure I, th I thank the lieutenant, I made sure I thank the board, because I do understand it's a thankless job, right? But you guys volunteered to do it, you guys signed up to do it, so do it well. Man, I could rip that survey up and down, but really I'm only using it as an example of the kind of problems we face here in this great city, in this great state of Minnesota. Full of so many great places and spaces and people and things, but it seems that 90% of the people have fallen victim to the perception of the Minneapolis boogeyman. So let's talk about that. Because I don't want to categorically dismiss my neighbors who responded to that survey. My, not neighbors, I mean very figuratively because again, they didn't give nobody in my downtown building or my buildings the survey but <laughs> i'm gonna leave that alone y'all know i'm a little petty but none of my neighbors downtown who let's say legitimately feel scared living in downtown i mean that's awful i would hate to walk around scared in my own city i mean truth be told if i walked around scared in my own city i would really probably be like them and if i generally just walked around in fear all the time yeah i'd probably um dress my zip code too if i had the financial means to do so but what is really important is that we look at how you come to get to that perception and i'm looking at this phenomenon that i've seen a lot a lot a lot more on these facebook message boards and these neighborhood apps and i want to kind of be blunt about this if you're a punk ass motherfucker stay off the citizens app there i said it <laughs> But I'm just saying, like, if the Citizen app is double-edged, because it is absolutely important to be connected into what's going on in your city. But the Citizen app is not there to tell you, like, oh, somebody bought someone's groceries today. Oh, I went out to FEMA's last night and someone paid for my dinner. A complete stranger. Shout out Black History Month. <laughs> I mean, the... The app is not for that, right? The app is there to feed you constant notifications about the wrongdoings going on in this city. Now, if you sit there and you constantly consume this criminal content on the app, and that's a whole other episode we can get into about the idea of the dopamine hit hitting you and how you should probably have your notifications turned off on your phone so you're not constantly getting into that, right? But you think about, like, let's even say the 1990s at the early 2000s, you didn't have every crime committed in your neighborhood pinging your phone, right? But if you are going to constantly use that as your source of the safety in your neighborhood, then yeah, you're going to be freaked out all the time. I'm noticing on these message boards or whatever, people typically older, but I mean, I'm seeing people of all, really across the spectrum, using that app cost certain demographics don't use it as much as others, let's be fair, let's be real. I'm seeing them use this app incessantly to talk about how awful it is to live downtown. Check on the Facebook groups and see some of the awful things that they put in there. And I'm talking about Northeast Minneapolis, right? It's about North Loop Minneapolis, about downtown, uptown. I mean, you would think we live in some apocalyptic Gotham City, Batman style city. Let me tell y'all, I walk with my, my five-year-old 
nephew because the Skyways close super early and they're not designed for people who live downtown. They're only designed for people who come from the suburbs to exist downtown. But uh, that's another story for another episode. <laughs> Me and my nephew Nono have to walk from Gavaday Plaza all the way up to around Loring Park area. We cross all the hot spots down Nicollet Mall when it's dark outside. We pass Target. You know, that corner can be kind of sketchy, quote unquote. Ask me if anybody bothered us. No one. Me and Nono make that walk regularly. No issues, no complications. My five-year-old got more heart than a lot of you, which is wild because he still does believe in boogeyman. But when we move outside, we're street smart. We don't just walk around in a state of constant fear because we're alert, we're aware. I understand that crime happens. Shit, one day I might be a victim of that crime. But when you're really outside, outside, and not just like, you know, from your parking ramp to the car, to the car, to the parking ramp, fearful of every homeless person who says hi to you or every unfamiliar face, then you realize that most people downtown are just going about their business and if you mind yours you're going to be fine as well that's typically how the things go down here i'm really outside on a regular basis walking i don't drive around the city i hate driving shit that's why i moved to the city in the first place right i'm rarely driving unless i got a bunch of groceries and even then i've done that hike from target with the six seven eight nine ten bags trying to you know take frequent breaks never had an issue restaurant week i was at fogo fema and i'm not speaking about some long time ago this was last weekend y'all and i'm not saying my experience is every experience lord knows i hate anecdotal evidence as a primary Boy. come on y'all like i too dream of a day where i can exist in a crime-free utopia like i want no violent crime no property crime i want a society where we treat the root causes of poverty and crime rather than addressing the surface level symptoms and manifestations of it with more police and jail time <laughs> but we're not there yet far from it and i fully understand that and i chose to live in the city anyway and you telling me how fearful you are to be in exam town or worse you live in st louis park or egan or st cloud tell me how bad the cities is or you in the city you'll be outside i had a friend who was living in minnetonka tell me about how she got updates on this app for minneapolis that's another perception shaping tool and i'm not alone in this philadelphia magazine actually published something on it here it is temple criminal justice professor ajima olaguer says this app reinforces perception of people's ideas of crime and fear these notions of disorder stoke fear in people and often translate to 911 calls even when nothing criminal is going on the constant crime notifications coming in through the citizens app have the potential to shape users psychology and there it is think about it when in this country do we have 90 percent of people agree on anything rather less having 90 percent of people in the city agreeing that they feel less safe and that not giving anyone pause to run a ridiculous story about that i gotta bring this point back up y'all perception is not reality always perception can become a self-fulfilling prophecy more often than not i don't know why they want to create that perception i don't know who benefits from creating that perception but as long as i'm in the city i'm gonna make sure i'm loud and proud and let you guys know that is not reality i love the city too much to allow anybody Esme Murphy, WCCO, anybody to lie about the reality of what it is here now i want to unveil the bigger picture in a couple short days here we're going to have the trial of Derek chauvin for the murder of george floyd that trial is going to rip open a lot of old, festering, painful wounds in the city from the Minneapolis uprising a year ago. But that wasn't just in response to that agonizing 8 minutes and 46 seconds of video footage where you had to watch a man narrate his own death under the knee of law enforcement. No, amplified by the pandemic, it was a 
response to repeated and repeated systematic failure of the justice system in this country. Not so much for the hiring of what we call the bad apples or what they want us to characterize as a few bad apples, but for the failure to hold them to account once it is determined that they have committed a crime while being funded by taxpayer money. The Minneapolis uprising was the product of a failed system that brought us Terrace Franklin, Philando Castile, George Floyd, amongst many other victims of police brutality and murder in this state, this city, this country. We did not get here by accident. We got here through perception building and narrative shaping that we have to hold our media accountable for in this city and in this state at large. The great state of Minnesota has been disproportionately the center of too many high profile police murders. It is an ugly, ugly cross to bear. And when you have stations, reporters like WTCO irresponsibly using their platform and not telling the story of the taxpayers seemingly working as propaganda arms for law enforcement, that is a recipe for us to be here again and again and again. No one in this city wants to feel the way it felt watching the city burn and looted and lied on and mischaracterized and misrepresented. Indeed, the cost of bad policing is taxing on a city financially and morally. The cost of bad journalism is just as high. But as long as we do not have fair and just journalism in this state, as long as the narratives do not fit the reality, as long as the people shaping policy, opinion, and decisions do not reflect the voices of those who which it disproportionately harmed, as long as those who are disproportionately harmed are not centered, their voices are used as sound bites or sound clips after the wreckage and carnage, or worse, ignored altogether. Then we will be right back here as a city, as a state, in maybe one year, maybe three years, maybe five years, but we'll be right back here if things don't change. I'm giving y'all the game right now. I could have picked any number of stories, but this one really illustrates all the themes that Minneapolis has to address in order to move forward. We have to be able to hold people to account. The stakes are too high. I can't be watching the news and wondering if this person is secretly working with that person. That's the only reason why this story is running or absolutely egregiously worse sleeping with. And at the very least, if this is the way that journalism in this state is going, then please, you citizen, I'm begging, be aware of what you're consuming and how you are allowing it to shape your perception. Be intentional. Support local journalism. If you can afford it, please. All right, y'all. So let's wrap up. So what are the big takeaways? Be more intentional about the process and the voices at the table. Be intentional about the narratives that we are building and that we are buying into. Be conscious of the apps you consume, such as Citizens app. Let them be a tool, not make you the tool. And make Minnesota more equitable for everybody. Because everyone deserves to love Minnesota as much as I do. <laughs> yeah, and I meant every one of those words, too. Deserves to love Minnesota. That's the word of the way. Yeah, man, you're looking to the Weird Away podcast. You know, I'm straight out of Minnesota. You know what I mean? I say, number one, number one, number one. This, I can't believe my eyes. Everything raw, explicit. Take what I say, I deliver it to your bum buckler. Do you understand me? All right, that's it. Bonus episode in the books. You got dessert before dinner. I started going in on this one. I just had to get it out there. Um, it's especially important too. Make sure you guys are being so discerning and so critical about what you're consuming as far as news goes and who's doing the reporting. Make sure you're aware of biases that might exist within yourself and the reporting, right? Like we gotta be able to counterbalance that. And we gotta stick together because I'm betting on Minneapolis. I know we're gonna bounce back. 
right after we get this guilty verdict, we're going to be on the, on the up and up. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. This was recorded in the beautiful downtown studios. In my downtown studios, y'all know I mean my what? Bedroom. <laughs> Closet. <laughs> Episode one coming so, so soon. It's just been a busy time to be alive, but I'm grateful for it. Spread love, find the weirdos, and we'll talk soon.